Hello and welcome to the Spiritual School Bus. I'm Mandy Hecht. I'm an ordained minister with the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada, and I drive a school bus. In Baptist churches and on the bus, it seems like everyone wants to sit in the back. You, however, are invited to take a front row seat on the Spiritual School Bus. scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis. We're doing selections of the life of Joseph, so it's going to be a little bit choppy and broken up. So beginning in Genesis chapter 37, we're going to read verses 3 to 8. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, and suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and because of what he said. We're going to skip a little further down in the chapter to verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. And just a little bit further down in the chapter, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So his brothers agreed. When the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? They got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to the father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. And now we're going to go to chapter 50, which is the end of the story. We're going to start in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children, 
and he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. May God bless the reading and hearing and living of his word today. Let's see what will become of his dreams. In the city of Memphis, in what used to be the Lorraine Motel, outside of room 306, there is a plaque. The significance of that particular room and that particular motel is that that is where Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stayed on the night of April 3rd, 1968, the last night he spent on earth before he was assassinated. The plaque does not say the words on his tombstone, free at last, nor does it contain any words from one of his most famous speeches, the I have a dream speech. Instead, there is two verses from Genesis, from the account of another famous dreamer who encountered many obstacles and difficulties, injustice and suffering on the way to realizing his dream, which turned out to be God's dream too. Joseph the dreamer was approaching his brothers from a distance and they spotted him and they said to one another, here that master of dreams is coming. So now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns. We'll say a bad animal ate him. We'll see what will become of his dreams. And those are the verses that are inscribed on that particular plaque outside of that particular landmark. Behold, here cometh the dreamer. Let us slay him, and we shall see what becomes of his dreams. What will become of his dreams? While the headlines lately have shown that Dr. King's dreams for a flourishing humanity for people of all skin colors, his dream of a time when people would be judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin, have not yet totally become a reality. His dreams have been deferred far too long. When author and professor and one of my favorite podcasters, Kate Bowler, was diagnosed with stage four cancer in her 30s, she writes about the experience saying, cancer has kicked down the walls of my life. Cancer requires that I stumble around in the debris of dreams that I thought I was entitled to and plans I realized I didn't make, I'd never made. So what becomes of your dreams when you receive a dreaded diagnosis or that phone call in the middle of the night? One friend of mine had been going through a very difficult time in his life. He had lost his job, and it actually took him two years before he was able to find another one in the field that he loved and was trained in. And all that time he spent looking for that other job, he was questioning himself and his competence and whether it was worth him to keep looking for a job in this field or to go back to another earlier job that he'd held, whether he should stay put while he was looking for work or move closer to his extended family. And all of those questions were hanging over his head and that of his wife and kids as well. What would become of his dreams as he struggled with this uncertainty? Well, the good news for him is that my friend finally got his miracle. He found a good job in the field that he loved. And as he and his family began to do things like prepare their home to sell and to move and to look at new houses in their new city where they were moving, his wife turned to him and said, I feel like I can dream again. My friend and his family's dreams were restored. But life can sometimes make it hard for us to dream, can't it? When we are consumed on a daily basis with immediate problems or concerns, whether that those are having enough to put on the table or paying rent, or whether we've received a diagnosis that puts our future into question, or we've lost employment, or we face depression or anxiety, or we struggle in our jobs, or even... We go through a worldwide pandemic that makes, makes future planning futile. It can be hard to hold on to dreams or to come up with new ones. 
Joseph was a dreamer. He was proficient also in interpreting the dreams of others. And as we read, he dreamed one day that while he and his brothers were binding wheat into sheaves, his sheaf stood upright while the sheaves of his brothers bowed down to his. He had a second dream, which we didn't read about today, because it's very similar, but in that dream, there were 11 stars, as well as the sun and the moon, and they all bowed down to him. We could probably suggest that Joseph was insensitive, immature, even entitled. We can question whether maybe he wasn't a bit of a self-absorbed jerk since he had these dreams and then decided to blurt them out to the rest of his family. His brothers were already smarting because their father made no bones about the fact that he favored Joseph above all his other sons, proven by the extravagant gift of the ornamented robe or the amazing technicolor dream coat that Jacob gave to his son. And now he tells his brothers about these dreams he's had, bragging about his nighttime visions that would seem to indicate that not only is Joseph their dad's favorite, but he's probably God's favorite as well. Many interpreters of this story point out how very much Joseph at least seems to make his own troubles worse by his insensitivity and immaturity, and at very worst, how he actually brings his troubles down on his own head. One commentator even goes so far as to suggest that maybe these dreams that Joseph reports having are closer to expressing his own hidden desires, questioning whether they're legitimately from God or not. But I'm not sure we can dismiss his dreams quite so easily. I land a little bit closer to Bible interpreter and scholar Walter Bregeman, who says that the dreams of Joseph are the unsettling work of the Lord upon which everything depends. Without the dream, there is no Joseph and no narrative or story. From the perspective of the brothers, without the dream, there's not much trouble or conflict. For his father, without the dream, there would be no grief or loss. The dream sets his own course, and in the end, the dream prevails over the tensions of the family. So even though Joseph's dreams upset his brothers so much that they become intent on harming him, in fact, most of them had to be held back from killing him, these dreams set the course of the story. The dreams of Joseph, badly handled, even reflective of the wishers of the dreamer, though they are, are what shape this story. But I wonder how Joseph felt about his dreams when he was being set upon by his brothers, whom he'd actually gone to see on the instruction of his father to in make sure that they were doing all right. What did Joseph think of his dreams when they stripped him naked of his ornamented robe, another memorable part of the story, which was a special gift to him from his father, a symbol of his father's love for Joseph, but had become a symbol of the brother's loathing. When he heard his brothers discussing all the ways they wanted to harm him, even though the voice of cooler heads prevailed, convincing the majority that since they were brothers, they probably shouldn't shed his blood, instead they settled on the much more brotherly course of flinging him into a pit and then selling him to slavery, which, if you know much about slavery in that time and place, it actually could have been a death sentence in and of itself, just they wouldn't be the ones doing the killing. And even if it wasn't, being sold into slavery was humiliating and subjected their brother to severe punishment and even torture. When they tossed him into that dry cistern but sat about eating their lunch in the area, enjoying food and drink while Joseph went hungry and grew parched, was he thinking of his dreams? I wonder if Joseph thought much about his dreams when he was trying to stay alive in the slave caravan, 
trying to exercise his duty despite the persecution he faced as a slave in Potiphar's household, or when he was tossed into prison after being falsely accused, and when he languished there, forgotten by those who said they would remember him. What becomes of Joseph's dreams when he suffers humiliations and harm over the years with no end in sight? What becomes of his dreams before he has the ability to look backward and see the big picture at the end? Let's see what will become of his dreams. Because the unbelievable thing is that Joseph's dreams, which start the story out on such a bad footing, fracturing the already fragile bonds of Jacob's family and sending Joseph into the spiral of events where he loses his freedom and endures injustice and imprisonment, where he becomes a slave, where he's betrayed by friends who said they would look out for him. By the end of the story, his dreams do in fact come to pass. Joseph becomes a very powerful person in the Egyptian court, saving not only the people of Egypt, but a lot of people from the surrounding lands, and ultimately even saving the lives of his own family from the ravages of famine. So Joseph, in the end, really does rise above the others. And not only that, but in the last couple of chapters of this long and complex drama, his brothers do literally bow down to him and offer to become his slaves as his dream predicted that they would. One writer points out that ever since he rose to be an administrator of the government supply of grain in Egypt, Joseph has all the official power in this story. And as the one who is wronged, Joseph also has all the interpersonal power, the power to forgive. These two sides of Joseph's power, the personal and the political, combine when Joseph makes his big theological proclamation at the end of the story, even though you intended to do me harm. God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people, as he is now doing today. That's Genesis 50, verse 20, one of the more famous verses from this passage. However, even though Joseph's dreams do come true by the end of the story, when he finally realizes these dreams that have kicked off the entire saga, I would say the dream is transformed or perhaps even redeemed. What started out like a selfish vision in the beginning becomes a vision of self-giving and service to others. By the end, Joseph is able to realize that God was indeed orchestrating the events of this life, difficult as they were, even though they were born out of malice and evil intentions. But he was doing so not just to give Joseph a cushy job or to make him feel really good about himself as others bowed down to him, but God did this in order to save many lives. Joseph chooses to forgive his brothers, using his power not just to make sure that they are fed, but even to restore relationship to them. So in the end, the dreams look different and more mature and more self-giving than self-serving. I think that the dreamer, even if the dream, uh, was transformed, and Joseph becomes more like God, to whom he gives all the credit by the end of the story. Let's see what will become of his dreams. The other dreams at stake in this story are the dreams of God. We've been in Genesis for a few weeks now, and when God created the heaven and the earth, God had a very particular dream for the way that humanity and the rest of the created world would go. The dream is summed up with this lovely Hebrew word, the word shalom. The word is often translated peace, but it has a much broader meaning than simply not shouting at or fighting with each other. This word has overtones of wholeness and healing and flourishing. 
It has a meaning where everyone has what they need to live their life to the fullest. And this is what we see in the garden paradise of Eden, where God created humankind, giving them everything they needed to eat, beautiful things to look at, and even each other for companionship, and a relationship with God so close that God would come and walk with the human beings in the cool of the day. But then God's heart is broken, God's dreams delayed when humanity decides not to place their trust in the God who created them. Last week, we mentioned that in an attempt to restore creation to the dream that God had in the beginning, God begins to take another tack, and he narrowed the focus to one man, one family, through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. The story of Genesis really does turn a corner when we meet Abraham, who, of course, is that one man. And his faith becomes legendary, echoing as a model for the faithful in the Old and the New Testament. However, just three generations later, for Joseph and his brothers would have been the great-grandsons of Abraham, this is what has become of that one family through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. By this time in the story, they are a petty, squabbling bunch, arrogant, murderous, and deceitful. You can see the ways that the many flaws of their father and the other ancestors have come home to roost with this particular generation. For instance, Jacob's sons trick him in much the same way that he tricked his own father. Jacob plays favorites the same way that his mother and father played favorites. And these brothers despise and plot against one another, just like their father and their uncle Esau did. This is the family through whom God is going to bless the entire world. When I was preparing this week's message, I actually found two big themes that were contenders for basing the message around. Dreams, which of course I picked, and then dysfunction was the other one. And while I ultimately focused on the dreams, the dysfunction of the situation and this family is impossible to ignore in this whole drama. If God is on a mission to restore God's dreams for humanity through this particular family, we could probably be forgiven for wondering how in the world God is going to bless the world through this family and these dysfunctional people. Might put your own family problems into perspective, in fact. Where is the hope that can come from this mixed bag of selfish and violent and arrogant folks? What becomes of God's dreams? One of the very interesting things about the story of Joseph, which takes up a very large part of the book of Genesis, some 18 of its 50 chapters, is that God does not directly show up. Nowhere do we see God intervening in the life of Joseph or providing miracles or an 11th hour rescue for him. But by the end of the story, it's very clear to Joseph and to us that God has been there all along. Even though Joseph's brothers had evil intentions toward him, God transformed those bad intentions into something good to save many people from starvation. God's genius, it seems, is to take the bad events and the dark threads of each of our lives and turn them into something good and redemptive. In the words of, the one, of one writer, he says, while God does not will the brothers into a hatred that leads to violence, what kind of a God does that? The Spirit of God is nevertheless at work in a world that is shaped by human actions. God is present in the story through the actions of others, of Joseph, of Pharaoh, and of all those who move Joseph's story along to its conclusion. So the beauty of the work of God is that God can take a dysfunctional family full of people who are imperfect and sinful, 
and work through this family and these people to make something good, to accomplish at the end of the story, as they say, what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In the long ongoing story of scripture, we learn time and time again that God does work around and through flawed human beings, that God can knit dysfunctional families into the story that God is writing, the story that is still unfolding for the blessing of the entire world. As Joseph's words about God's promise or purposes reveal, as one writer puts it, God's plan for good and for life triumph over the plots of fearful and wounded hearts. God's grace creates the space for forgiveness that will break the cycle of retaliation and abuse, setting slaves and prisoners free. And ultimately, that is what will become of God's dreams for this world. For you know if you have a peek at the end of the Bible to see who done it, you know that one day God's dreams will be realized. God will, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When God's dwelling place will now be among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God, and he will wipe every tear away from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's what we read in Revelation chapter 21. We don't have to sit around and wonder what will become of God's dreams, for God is committed to being devastated by humanity over and over again, and still working through events and through people who are flawed and dysfunctional and even evil at times to continue to bring about the reconciliation, the shalom, the healing, and the wholeness, which was God's dream from the very beginning. However, we live life in the meantime. We live life in the time before we have the complete picture in our rearview mirror. We're still waiting for the days when we will see what will become of our dreams, the dreams of some of our greatest leaders, and we wait for the day when we will finally see God's dreams fulfilled. And so in the meantime, while we're still waiting for God's dreams and our dreams to come true, for God's purposes to win out, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, I want to leave you with the words of one writer. And incidentally, this writer wrote these words for the African-American lectionary, so I think this is a reliable person to think about dreams both deferred and realized. He writes this, Pits do not necessarily destroy our dreams. Waiting does not kill us. We are still alive. God uses people like Reuben to keep us alive. A dream deferred is not a dream denied. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage. Yes, rough times are coming, but sweet change is also coming. Amen. May we live in the hope of the day when God's dreams will become our everyday reality. Would you bow with me in prayer as we close? God of dreams and God of hope, you spoke to Joseph through his dreams, and those dreams led him to great danger. Yet you used the challenges in his life to save the life of others. In you, no good thing is accidental. You work in us and you work through us, even in those times when we can't quite feel your presence. Help us to know that you are with us and that you only and that only you are capable of turning all things evil into good. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. 
This has been the Spiritual School Bus. Thank you for listening. For more Spiritual School Bus, visit www.pastormandy.com. This recording is copyright 2020 by Mandy Hecht and may only be copied or redistributed by express written permission. Thank you and have a blessed week. As you go this week, go into the world in peace. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. Amen.